Hello and welcome to the Hawkesbury Gazette podcast for July 18. I'm Christina Pollard and I'm joined today by Connor Hickey. Connor, how are you? I'm good, Christina. How are you? I'm very well. Today we're talking uh, greyhounds, people and their pets, and later on we'll be having a chat with Macquarie MP Susan Templeman. Um, but first to the greyhounds and Connor, you've done a rather disturbing story um, this week. Nine dead greyhounds were found in a mass grave at Marsden Park with another, I think, 12 emaciated dogs removed by the RSPCA. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not good. Um, no, it's definitely it, it, not the good. The story was picked up by just about every major um, newspaper or n- news outlet, I should say, in the country. And yeah, Marsden Park property, there's nine dead greyhounds found in, um, in a mass grave and another 12 were taken away um, because they were sick um, and, and or starving. Uh, it's mm. just really, really not a great look. The, the, um, and the photos I think that the RSPCA provided as well are, are fairly graphic, uh, you'd have to say. Yeah, no, they are. Uh, I mean, the, we published it. We, had a, we actually had a really long debate on, um, I think it was Wednesday when we first found out about the story, about whether or not to publish some of these photos because they're, you know, they're very confronting. If, mm. if um, I know whenever I hear about some of those animal, um, you know, sort of like the live exports things, I don't really want to watch the footage. That's true. Um, mm. Because it's just... Um, it's disturbing. I don't really want to watch that. Mm. Um, it's not something that I want to be involved in. Um, and, and yeah, you know, it's, so it's... it's oh, You just sort of don't know what to say. It, it mm. uh, The industry... Um, because the industry has gone through, you know, a yeah. period of change, having having sort of, you know, been banned and then not banned and then, you know, and, and you've got to say there's a lot of people in the Hawkesbury who do actually do have greyhounds and, and greyhound racing and a lot of people treat their dogs very, very well, it's got to be said. Um, That's and true. And then we keep seeing stuff like this and it just makes it harder and harder for the people that do treat their greyhounds properly to say, you know, it's not everyone. Mm. Um, and really, I don't know how many more hits like this the industry can take before maybe they do just say, you know what, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll go back and ban it. Um, well, that's, there's been at least one, um, one MP who said that, um, the, the, she, in her words, gruesome discovery, um, of the mass, mass grave showed that the industry hadn't changed. Um, that was a New South Wales Greens MP, Dr. Far, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Faruqi. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Marine Faruqi? Yeah. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. I could be wrong. Uh, I'm she, sorry she's basically, wrong. No, well, she's basically come out and said, you know, this just shows that really the industry hasn't changed. But, you know, we've had a lot of feedback on our Facebook page with obviously a lot of people very, very upset about this. Um, but others saying, listen, you know, I train greyhounds or my father or my relatives or my friends train greyhounds and they, they treat these dogs with the utmost respect. So it's... yeah. Uh, and they probably do, uh, mm. but then we we keep seeing this, the, you know, these sorts of of fines, and it's uh, it's it's got to the state. You know, I guess this is more a social issue now more than anything because it's sort of um, how do people what standards do they expect to you know you, to treat your animals with? Uh, back in the day, it might have been a little bit different, but but in twenty eighteen, it seems that a lot of people don't want to see this sort of treatment of animals. Um, well, and I think there's a rise as well in 2018. I know, you know, having been involved myself with the, the thoroughbred racing industry, um, that there's a, a continuing push of people who don't want to see animals used for, you know, entertainment, for sport. Commercial for, gain. Yeah, exactly. If you right. go to Melbourne um, around Melbourne Cup time, I'm not sure if they do it every year, but certainly I did a couple of years ago and there were signs everywhere saying stop the party and it was basically 
the, the point of it was is that while everyone's having a great time and getting, you know, rip-roaringly drunk on Melbourne Cup Day, um, there's all these horses that some of them end up getting killed because they're either not fast enough um, mm. or they they are fast enough, race on the track and then break a leg um, and, and it's break quite down. a serious horse yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. injury for a horse and you have to put them down. Um, and and then there's other, you know, I suppose if you want to really get into a more um, philosophical level, have you actually asked these animals whether they want to be mm. up at the crack of dawn, ridden really hard by the jockeys um, and, you know, f- you know, fed these uh you know strict mm. diets and things like that so that that's obviously a whole other other topic but and it's the yeah. same argument for greyhounds yeah and it is it is a, a difficult question too because you know there there is an industry built around this particular sport um there's there's jobs there's employment there's you know there's a whole other um uh, issue um, quite apart from this and unfortunately I think it's you know the, the few who are like you say ruining it for the majority of people that treat their dogs very well and have put a lot of money into this and it, it is quite scientific you know if you want a dog or a horse or whoever to perform well it's like a human athlete you have to treat them well you have to regulate their diets you have to make sure they're looked after um, and, and it is a difficult question. Not for this particular story, let's make it clear, but the allegations are that I think you used the term just before wastage, mm. which is dogs that just aren't fast enough don't make the cut. That's and right. so ideally what would happen is, okay, you're not fast enough, we'll find your new home. But the allegation is about the industry that there's There's the only past, a finite amount of homes, I think, that yeah. you can find. For and so some people it's just easier to either yeah, kill them right. or let them slowly starve and when, mm. and just to be very clear we're not saying anything about this particular story we don't know the facts behind it except that the greyhounds were found um in these states as reported by the rspca and they're mm. in the process of laying charges but that that has been the allegations in the past mm. against the industry and when yeah it, you know it's just it's just not a great look when, when and things that's like it this and i think it's it, quite a lot it, it also affects i think the the officers who go out and actually investigate these things too I, I think that they were describing it as um a horrific find for for the inspectors and it, it you know it's literally stomach churning uh, for the officers on the property who had to pull the greyhounds out of a mass pit. I mean, you know, that's that's not a pleasant job for no. anybody to be doing. So I think it, again, just really highlights the, the, the industry itself, shines a light on the industry. And obviously, like I said, being in the Hawkesbury, we've got a, a racetrack here in the Hawkesbury and it's, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see. It's very you know, possible that the person whose property was raided had some of the greyhounds race at this track. Yeah, possibly. The pro- proximity. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, yeah, it is, it is I, quite... I think the only way out of this really is for people within the industry to start dominating each other in and making sure that and I think you're treating that's what, your I think that's so what well. happened in this case, wasn't it, Connor? Did, did they receive well, a tip-off? Well, yeah, the RSPCA said a member of the public. They didn't say who it was. Mm. Um, so it could have been someone within the industry. It could have been a neighbour. It could have been anybody. Mm. Um and yet, I mean, that's that's tip, a positive yeah, thing, off. you know, to 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 have a tip off from from somebody who is concerned, so concerned about these dogs, you know, it's 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 good. It, it means if it is someone in the industry, well, then that means that, you know, they're they're caring about what happens to their industry as well, what happens to the future of their industry. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, there's, there's sort of a lot of arguments about whether this should be moral and things like that, particularly when we were talking about the horses before. Um, at the end of the day, there is an industry that's based around this and there's a lot of people that could lose their jobs if the industry was to close down. Mm. It would probably um, you know, be quite disastrous for a lot of people. But at the same time, 
can you know can we continue to to justify that yeah that the economic benefit to some mm. when we see you know harm to others harm i suppose others, is, is the yeah. best way to to describe it so mm. that's um and as well, this is exactly right. So, I, I mean, and I, we can't tell. We've started uh, this week, if you turn to page seven of the Hawkesbury Gazette this week, we're actually doing a, a Hawkesbury people and their pets, which is a, a little bit of an exciting thing. And I've got to say, I'm promoting my own horse, uh, Fatty, in the paper this week. Um, so it's it's been 12 months since the Hawkesbury Gazette embarked on our really unique Hawkesbury 100 Faces photographic project, which was absolutely fantastic. Very well attended exhibition. Um, Gazette photographer Jeff Jones did an amazing job. He's, I understand we're up for a few awards for it as well. Absolutely, we are. That's right. We just got the news through today. So that's, that's wonderful. Um, so what we're doing now is we're going to do something a little bit different. It's not going to be 100 people this time, but we're going to showcase 30 people and their pets. So what we're doing is we're calling for people to send in uh, a picture of you and your pet, and that can be anything from a horse to a hamster to a goldfish to an iguana, an elephant, if you happen to have an elephant. That, I assume that would be illegal, so maybe don't contact, contact well, us about that. Well, you maybe have an elephant. Is having an elephant illegal? Uh, I'm sure there'd be some more. Right, okay, well, maybe not elephants, but if you have an unusual pet or, or a usual pet, um, we're going to be featuring 30 people. We'll have Jeff come out and take um, some photos of you guys. But it's not just about the, the photographic, you know, the, the, the photos themselves, which will be beautiful, but it's about the story with the pet. So the story behind, you know, your relationship with your pet. Maybe you have an interesting story about how you got your pet. Maybe um, your pet's helped you through some difficult times. Um, and it's, it's just going to be a, a really fun thing to do. We're going to try and embark on it starting from this week. Anybody who's interested in actually sending us uh, stories of their pets um, can send them to uh, our email address, which is our editor, Matt, which is mlawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, at fairfaxmedia.com.au. Um, with a brief explanation, your contact details, the name of your pet, and uh, a picture of, of you with your pet, which I think I think is pretty exciting. I like seeing people and and reading about them and their pets. That's always that's always been a bit of fun. Yeah, you and know? you'll you'll get some really um, nice photos out, out of it at the end um, to look at them. You probably have to buy them. We should be upfront and clear because it does cost us money to get them done. But certainly that you know nice photos of of you and your pet certainly to remember them by. Um, Absolutely, and, and Jeff Jeff said that he really he really really enjoyed doing the hundred faces exhibition. Um, he said it created a lot of engagement within the local community, which I think this will as well. Um, and so we thought that we we needed to something that could follow on from that, um, you know. And obviously, being the Hawkesbury, being an agricultural area, there's a lot of properties, you know, bigger bigger size blocks. There's so many different types of animals in the community. Um, that, you know, let's have a look at what we've got out there. We've done stories before on, on um, what, alpacas, on rats, on, you know, yeah, all rats. Sorts if anyone's of got a rat, I'd like to see that actually. Oh, rats are apparently, I've never owned one as a pet, but Matt used to have a rat as a pet and he said they're quite, um, he loves quite them. lovable creatures. Yeah, they're, they're not at all sort of the, the, um, the, you know, filthy animals that, that a lot of people make them out to I be. think I think a lot of people are a little bit scared of them kind of thing, but he, he absolutely loves them. And the way so he describes it, honestly, I, I kind of want to get a rat. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Right. Well, it's, it's you know, if you've got any kind of rats out there that uh, maybe Connor could meet as well, um, we welcome you to, to send your entries in and uh, we're going to be going through them. Uh, just to keep in mind that everything needs to, pictures should be in JPEG format and be no bigger than three megabytes um, because otherwise we just can't be dealing with that kind of thing. So start getting your entries in. Uh, we're we're going to start going through them and, and see what happens, but uh, we would encourage everybody to, to have a go, put get out there and, and see how you go. So I think that's a little bit exciting. It's a new project that the Hawkesbury Gazette is doing that we're very proud of and um, something to get us involved in the local community as well. So speaking of the local community, we uh, Connor and I actually had a chat to Susan Templeman earlier on and um, put a few questions to her. So let's have a bit of a listen to that. Susan, welcome to the Gazette's podcast today. Thank you. So just give us a little bit of, of a background. You weren't always a federal MP. Uh, why did you decide to run? You were, you know, pretty tenacious going for the seat. You were around for quite a while before you actually got the seat. Um, why did you decide to, to go for it? That's probably one of the most commonly asked questions and there's no simple answer to it except obviously I really did want the opportunity of representing Macquarie. Uh, I started out as a journalist. in, in Great a, thing to start out a, as. Absolutely and I, I didn't stay a journalist for more than about a decade. So after a few years in the Canberra Press Gallery and then a few years in New York and London as a journalist, uh, I came back to Australia with absolutely no intention of getting involved in politics and in fact it took me about 20 years to even consider after that going into politics. I had my own business for a couple of decades but I think that the more I could see as a mum that things needed to change in our school systems, the way mental health was supported and how families were supported to help their kids deal with mental health issues, uh, the, the more you start looking at the problems that we face as communities, the more you can see you actually need ordinary people in there. You don't just want people who are lawyers. There's an awful lot of lawyers yeah. in Canberra. One of my favourite lines has been, Parliament does not need another lawyer. <laughs> it's not to say there aren't fantastic people and legislation is all about the law, so that's really key. But we need diversity there. And if small business people and people who've raised families, people who know their areas well, aren't prepared to step up, then we end up with a parliament that isn't representative of us. So I was really lucky. I had a husband retiring. I had kids in their 20s, reasonable, or late teens, early 20s, reasonably self-sufficient, uh, if children are ever self-sufficient. <laughs> and, and there was an opportunity when Bob Debus, the former member for Macquarie, retired. So I thought it was time for a woman. Older people will remember that we had a female representative for Labor in Maggie Dean mm. back in the 90s. So That's 93 right. to 96, it had, it, there was this big gap where, where Labor had not had women standing for the seat and I thought it was about time. So a series of conversations led to me going, you know what, I can't find another woman to give this a go. I really think I'd better. And I thought if I didn't have a try, I would always regret it. So that's where my head was in 2010, 2009, when I first put my hand up. I never dreamed it would take me so long to achieve the goal. Uh, well, like nor, I say, you were tenacious. I well, mean, you were you you hung in there through uh, a, a couple of elections. There yeah. was yeah, 
And if I hadn't found I absolutely adored the journey, I wouldn't have been able to continue it. You can't keep losing doing something that you hate. You can only do it if you love it. So, mm. you know, I didn't know that I would ever win this seat. That's the reality. It's a marginal seat. There was never any guarantee that a Labor person could win it. And so I just thought, well, if I love the journey, am I making a difference? And I thought I was making a difference even without winning an election. And it is an unusual seat. It's, it's a seat that encompasses, I think, two very different areas. You've got, you know, the, the Blue Mountains um, and then you've got the Hawkesbury, which I think, you know, people identify with one or the other. Is it a tough seat to represent? Any marginal seat is difficult and you only need to look at the Electoral Commission's pendulum to see that there's a bunch of seats that are pretty marginal and that means that they swing relatively frequently. Uh, it is two quite distinct halves. Most marginal seats are a bit of a mishmash. They're sort of more mixed around but we are quite distinct and the state seats show you the distinction. You've got the Blue Mountains, fairly progressive, tends to vote Labor, and you've got the Hawkesbury state seat, very conservative, pretty much always, <clears throat> excuse me, always votes Liberal. Mm. That is just the way it is when you look at the state seats and my seat matches uh, the combination. They're two really, two state seats combined or two councils combined. Mm. Uh, but there are amazingly a number of connections, the number of people who live in the mountains but work in schools in the Hawkesbury or the number who were raised in the mountains but in fact have relatives in the Hawkesbury and vice versa. Kids whose parents are one side or the other and you know the connections are that Springwood Road, Hawkesbury Springwood Road, depending which direction you're driving, actually connects an awful lot of people and the TAFE is a real driver too. Yeah, and the university. So you've got lots of people who travel between the two halves of the electorate. And what was that reaction initially to you, you know, when you're coming down into an area like the Hawkesbury that is more conservative? You're obviously standing for Labor. How did you go in those that first initial door-knocking stage of introducing yourself, saying, hi, I'm Susan Templeman and I'm standing for Labor? How, how did that go? How were you received? Uh, I think the results of the 2013 and 2010 elections probably tell you that it, people didn't embrace a Labor candidate right from the start. And I think that's one of the challenges down here is for people to get to know you as an individual because, in fact, um, the, it's the person, I think, that people are making a decision about in, in this area a lot of the time. Uh, and every one of us is different. Within Labor, we're all different. You know, it's a hugely diverse bunch. The initial um, responses, though, were people wanted to talk about the issues. They, they were really pleased that someone cared and someone was interested in what was going on here. And I think that's one of the key things for the Hawkesbury. It has been so neglected by politicians of both sides, all levels and all colours. Uh, and to have someone who seemed to genuinely care and I think the fact that I didn't disappear when I lost an election but I stayed and kept understanding the area better, kept getting deeper into the issues and kept helping to try and find solutions even though I had lost an election was actually the the bit that people appreciated. And that was, that was a bit of a first for Labor because it, it, it sort of tended to go, well, you know, we've lost, we'll, we'll get another candidate. And then having to work again to introduce the next person is quite a task. I mean... Yeah, to, 
Traditionally, a candidate doesn't get chosen until a few months out from mm. an election. Now, it seemed to me, uh, you know, I'm a mountains girl. I've been there 20 odd years when I first stood, raised my kids there. Uh, so that, you know, that I knew the mountains really well, but the Hawkesbury was only just down the road. And my engagement with the Hawkesbury as a mum with little kids was to come down and do grocery shopping in Richmond. Uh, or to my husband and I would take them on a Sunday drive and we'd fantasise about being able to live across the river on, you know, mm -hmm. gorgeous acreage. And, and it is lovely. And then, then as my daughter got older, it was all about horses and things like that. So, you know, we never, we never made the move across here, but we had a familiarity with it and, and liked it. But to actually get involved um, was a choice that I made. No one told me to do it. No one in Labor says, okay, well, you lost, now you need to keep campaigning. And I didn't think of it as campaigning. I just thought of it as staying in, engaged with the community. And so I did the things I love. I love art, so I'd go to local art shows. I'm a bit of a sucker for school fates, so I would be at school Everybody fates. Everybody loves a great school fate. Well, apparently not, but <laughs> I'm told. But I do. <laughs> Can't always convince my husband to come with me. <laughs> Although he'll happily eat the cakes that I take home from There's them. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's so right. when, when you say that you engage with people and you know people were happy to hear you discussing some of the issues with them what do you think are the biggest issues down that that cover Macquarie what, what are the big federal issues here well the big issue in the Hawkesbury is traffic that that is and I don't care whether it's local state or federal that is the issue that impacts on everybody's life in a daily way so it, it doesn't matter technically where you know where the funding should come from it's and to solve the traffic issues in the Hawkesbury, you need multiple levels of funding and you need collaboration in getting it right. So that for me would be the number one issue. In And I see the issues as quite distinct on both sides of the electorate because they, they live very different lives. What, what um, do you mean as seeing them as quite distinct? So, so we know in the Hawkesbury, we have far more people who go through the TAFE system than the university mm -hmm. system. We have a higher proportion of TAFE qualifications in the Hawkesbury compared to the rest of Sydney. So a, a really strong TAFE system is crucial for families who want to see a future for their kids. Uh, on the mountainside, there is a higher, there's the percentage of kids going to uni is higher than the average. So they're much more interested in the universities. Uh, although TAFE is also really key for um, businesses in the Blue Mountains, in the tourism and hospitality, hospitality industries. Yeah. That's where their future staff mm, are coming. Mm. Here, it's about horticulture. Uh, so, you know, the same issue, slight variation on it, but education is an issue that goes across both sides of the electorate. Mm, um, mm. So, you know, looking at the issues is the big issue for the mountains is the, has been for the lower mountains in particular, has been the second airport in Sydney. And that's not an issue that's really um, got people's attention in the Hawkesbury, but interestingly, in the last few months, people in the Hawkesbury have been talking to me about a potential increase in flight noise from a second Sydney airport. So, you know, it's a fascinating the way different communities work.
They're all different. They all have their own personalities. The things that matter to Glossodia are very different to the issues that matter to South Windsor and Bly Park and, and Currajong Heights. Each is its own little community, yeah. And, and that's what makes it such an incredible area. It is so diverse, wonderful communities doing incredible things but facing different challenges. Well, one of, I know one of the big issues just recently, and I know Connor did this story, was the uh, inclusive playground at South yeah, Windsor. I was just about to ask the question about that. So Susan, like, a couple of weeks ago on a Monday, I opened my letterbox and there's there's your face on my letterbox or in my letterbox. Lucky you. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's some of your election um, materials that, that I know you, um, you guys send out every now and then. And one of the things in there was a petition to sign, um, for people to sign to, because you were trying to get people to get an inclusive playground. And then literally the next day, there's an announcement from Dominic Perrottet's office that there's going to be a $500,000 um, spend to get a, an inclusive playground in South Windsor. Now, maybe maybe it was happening anyway, but uh, you know, m me as a cynical journalist found the timing a little bit you know um, convenient. So then two days later, or it might have been the next day, I get a message from you saying that you know we're going to offer if we get elected another five hundred thousand dollars. So just like Take us through this because mm. it seems like regardless of what, what's happening here or the result of any elections or anything, there's going to be a playground built. But does it matter where the funding comes from? Because you said just before it doesn't really matter where the funding comes from to fix a traffic issue. So does it matter where the funding comes from to get this inclusive playground? Surely it's more important that it just gets built. I think what matters is it's the right amount of funding to build the right inclusive playground. And that's why uh, it is actually it's a million dollar project not a half million dollar project. So it is interesting. I've been obviously working on this, but I'm not the only one. There's been things at council talking about this. And uh, when when Bill Shorten was out and Christina, you were, you were there meeting Absolutely, with Rachel yeah. mm -hmm. and having conversations about the needs of people with disabilities. And so, so Rachel is actually the mother of a, of a boy who he wants to go to the inclusive playgrounds. And obviously it's a trip for him to go over to, I think Penrith they, they go over to. Um, because he can't access the normal, um, you know, playground equipment. So they're looking for, they were calling definitely for something to be done locally. And I, you were, you brought that issue up with Bill Shorten. So, yeah. And so I've been, had multiple conversations with Rachel Privetera and about her son, Cameron, and the needs that he might have. But even before that, uh, a wonderful foundation called Touched by Olivia who build Livy's Places, fully inclusive playgrounds, and they're building them right around the country. They just announced a $2.5 million one in Perth. Uh, they had been to Parliament to raise awareness with us as parliamentarians about why these things matter, not just for families with kids with a disability, or not just for the child, but for the family, for the extended family and friends, and for other families who interact. Uh, so that there's real inclusion. So it's not unusual to see someone in a wheelchair on a swing. It's not a point of novelty. It's just a fact of life. So there have been lots of conversations and we really felt it was important to um, get the Hawkesbury thinking about this as an important project. So that's why we sent our letter out to... to say to people, if you want this, let's try and get some support for it. Uh, we were completely, within 24 hours, completely overwhelmed by responses. We have had to send extra bags to the post office to collect 
the feedback from people supporting an inclusive playground. We're talking hundreds, I, I don't know what figure we're at now, hundreds and hundreds. I had a phone call, I've had phone calls from mums in tears saying, thank you, this is what we've needed for a long time. Thanks for talking about it. Thanks for trying to do something about it. I had a man ring up and offer his house. I had people ring up and offer land for it to go. So we, within 24 hours, we could see that this was actually something the Hawkesbury valued. It wasn't just me saying it was needed. It wasn't just Rachel saying, I think it's needed. There was real support. So we were delighted to see that so quickly the state government would stump up some cash. They'd never talked about it before. It hadn't been on their agenda. So it's fantastic that whatever had happened to get them thinking about it, they were able to make an announcement quite suddenly, I'm, I'm assuming. And then, Would you call that one-upmanship? I, I, look, I don't know if I don't know what you'd describe it as, except fantastic for the community to know that there is a half a million dollars on the table. Now, when I saw it, though, my concern was based on all the research I'd done that it's just quite frankly not enough to do something of any scale and size. So our choice then, uh, as, as a, um, if you're thinking about a promise, and we're very clear, we can't do this till Labor wins a federal election. So, you know, it is, it is a commitment rather than here's the cash on the table. Uh, but the question was, do we come out and say, oh, well, look, we don't think that's enough, so we'll build a million dollar one. Now, to me, that would be stupid politics. That would be playing with people's lives. So it's seen more sensible for me to collaborate and say, listen, if you're putting that in, we will too. I had already had, obviously, conversations with Bill about the need and it was a phone call to discuss it with his team to say, look, how, you know, this has happened. It's not enough. Can we make this a really decent, inclusive playground? And they didn't hesitate. And so what would that million dollars, if, if the state government and the federal government gave the $500,000, that would cover planning, potential purchase of land and play equipment? Is that what that covers? I think it's, it's even better than just a state commonwealth thing. We know that council is really keen to see something in the area. And so I think when the state government made its announcement, it was on the basis of it being on council land. So you've got three tiers of government all on the same page, cross-party support for something. So you get a fantastic inclusive playground built, uh, you know, uh, Livy's places are secure, they have fences around them. If you build it in the site that the state government nominated, which is South Windsor near Oasis, you've got, you're transforming that area potentially if it proves to be the right site and that really is for council to make decisions about. But, you know, you've got this extraordinary facility for a whole range of abilities to be able to use. And that's really transforming from a, for a community. Do you think it'd be refreshing for people to see all three tiers of government working together like this, no matter what your political flavour? It should be matter of course, but sadly in, in the Hawkesbury, we haven't really seen a lot of that. Uh, you know, this is, a, it should be about community. I think we need to get over the partisan stuff. There will be different uh, parties in government at different times, at different levels. They should still be able to work together for a common community goal. And, and so I think, you know, that's certainly my commitment. I've written to Mr Perrottet and made the offer. I haven't had anything back from him. So that, that's 
been a bit of a gap in a response. I'm not sure what his response will be, uh, but I've certainly had discussions with council and, you know, to say this, this is money that will be on the table uh, should we win government. And of course, it's up to the Prime Minister when an election's held. So, uh, you know, I've already started thinking through how it takes a lot of planning to do a good inclusive playground. You know, you can plan for stage one, stage two, if you want, you know, we've either got this much to spend or we've got this much. It's just not hard to do. Planning should be able to start immediately. Well, and also speaking of, of you know, the, the community, what the community wants, uh, Labor's stance regarding the, the Windsor Bridge replacement project and, and people's reactions specifically, I mean, this, this is a big issue. People know where you stand. People know where I think Pete Reynolds is and uh, Bill Shorten as well visited that. What's been people's reaction to your stance on on this and, and, and you being sort of in the tent and, and you standing up for this? Because every time we put something like this up on our Facebook page... The word page, partisan sprints to mind. It, it does. So what, what does... How do you view this? Like, you know, there's a lot of people want a new bridge. Uh, look, we absolutely need a new bridge. The question is is one lane, which costs $101 million, a good value outcome that happens to destroy the oldest public square in the country? To me, it's insanity. Just absolutely crazy. I don't care who's suggesting it, I would have been against it. Uh, and so the, the only, um, let's talk about this partisan stuff. I'd, I'd love for there to Sorry, have been... Sorry, that wasn't a dig at you if you thought it was. It's it, just, no, 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 I agree. Clearly, yeah. I see it on Facebook and there's yeah. a very small number of people who seem to engage but they fire people up. Um, it, it really does get people it fired. Does. <laughs> it really so does. when I first um, came to this, this issue, we're talking years and years and years ago, six years ago, um, I brought state Labor people out because we were in opposition and the government had proposed it. So I went, okay, this is a state issue. It's a really silly idea, but let's, let's see how state Labor feels about it. Um, the community group then formed uh, after a bunch of conversations. It was really clear to me that they were not Labor people in the community group that was initially formed. And I think even now when I sit in the tent and talk to people or stop by the tent, people will often say, been a Liberal voter all my life, but this is just outrageous. You, they will openly share that with you. And I know from people, other engagements I have with people, I'm dealing with long-term Liberal Party people. So that, I think it's just nonsense to say that that it's been, you know, taken over. There are a whole range of political views. More to the point, there are people who've never had a political view. They just love heritage and can't stand the ins insanity of this project. Um, but on the partisan issue, what is really gratifying to me is that at a federal level, we have bipartisanship on it. So I have been talking for two years now to Josh Frydenberg, the federal Liberal Environment and Heritage Minister about this issue. Only a few months ago, he wrote to the Premier and said, this site is significant. It is so significant that I think you should reconsider this project. Now, how can it be partisan if you have a federal Labor MP in conversation with a Liberal member, a Liberal Minister, and you agree? Now, the one thing that we disagree on is whether it should have national emergency listing. 
so the, where the disagreement lies is in the technical definitions around is it state significant or is it nationally significant? And I continue to maintain that there is national significance, but it is, it's really hard to convince the Australian Heritage Council that something is of national significance and they're the ones who advise the minister. Well, there's been, I, I know today I did a story, there's been a new Facebook page that started up. There's going to be a rally uh, on the weekend for a Royal Commission into how Transport for New South Wales actually goes about these things. Would you support a Royal Commission into this kind of thing? Uh, if if that's the only way to get to the bottom of it, then that's, that's the way we need to do it. Um, what I think we need to wait and see what the Upper House inquiry comes back with. You know, mm. that's pretty significant that the state government was forced into an upper house inquiry and with shooters and fishers and greens and labor all agreeing on it like that's a pretty diverse group of people who say hang on something's a bit smelly here uh, the the complication i think with thompson square is that there's two issues one is the traffic and one is the heritage and people are desperate for traffic improvements. There is just no doubt about it. It's horrendous it to have horrendous. a state member yeah. who says the, it doesn't warrant a bypass. You know, we don't have the traffic volumes to support an alternative. It's just nonsense. Uh, and, you know, I think he'll have to change his tune on that. But the to have an outcome where you get one extra lane, the problem for me is the Hawkesbury is going to be told, you got your extra lane, you should be happy now. Because this is what happens out here. We get a really half, half a solution and always the, the wrong half of it. Uh, so, they, you know, I think those two issues get confused. The Corb people are really, they care about the heritage, uh, but they also care about a proper traffic solution. Uh, and it's a simple, you know, we want both. Is it too much to ask that we have it all, that we get to keep our heritage and we get to have a decent commute to work? Do you think that transport then is is the biggest challenge for the Hawkesbury? I mean, we're, yeah. we're talking, you know, obviously not just traffic, but public transport as well. Is that one of the biggest challenges for the Hawkesbury? So when you go sort of down the list of issues, mm -hmm. yeah, tr the way people who don't drive or would like not to drive, get around the Hawkesbury is a real problem. I had a 17-year-old in the office yesterday from Colo High talking to me about the challenges she faces with her friends just to get to their jobs. We're not talking about going out and having a good time. We are talking about getting to part-time work. If they haven't got a parent or an older sibling who can drive them and pick them up, uh, then, then they really they find it really hard to get work across the river, and this is obviously where most of the jobs are, or even to connect to Richmond Station to be able to go and do a job elsewhere. So that sort of transport for elderly people and people requiring mental health services to get public transport to get to those services, which are all located in Penrith by and large, that's a real challenge. Uh, and for people with disabilities to be able to get about this electorate uh, is is really challenging. The you know lack of of um, accessible railway stations, the lack of frequency of trains. If you have a profound disability, that extra hours wait, all those sorts of things make it really hard. So yeah, I think traffic, transport, and then we come to issues like housing and home, housing affordability, homelessness. You know, and there's just a raft of issues that. That come out of that. What about um, business? Now, uh, one of the arguments that people I've heard, of, sorry to drag it back to Windsor Bridge, but one of the arguments I've heard people say about 
a bypass is that all, all business in Windsor will suffer. Do you think that would be the case if there was a bypass? What the data from the state government's own figures shows is that something like 70% of the traffic is driving through. It's not stopping. So what would be ideal is to let that traffic drive through without cluttering up our roads, have a decent crossing that all that through traffic uses. So if you are just wanting to come into Windsor, uh, that, that smaller amount of traffic does it really easily. That would be a real boost. Uh, the other issue that comes up for business is the number of people who come. Well, destroying heritage, which makes us unique, it's a unique selling proposition, the heritage we have. By getting rid of that, you're actually missing out on massive tourism benefits. Uh, we, there is so much economically we could do with that heritage if there was some forethought put into it and some commitment. And for the first time, you've got a council that's committed, you've got a federal member that's committed. It's just the state who don't seem to get it. What about North Richmond? There's a proposed North Richmond Bridge. They made the announcement, the state government made the announcement um, at budget time. Um, you, I think, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, you, you, you described it as a study. Um, is, that, is that correct? If, if well, I'm I, there's rightly. not a lot of detail, but it's $25 million over three years. And I did hear someone say, and at, end of, at the end of that, we'll have a plan. And I went, okay, actually, there's already a plan that was funded by federal labor in 2010 so even though i lost the 2000 election uh, 2010 election the front page of the courier just before the election had a picture of me and anthony albanese our roads minister at the time on the north richmond bridge with a 20 million dollar commitment two million dollars of that was for the study and the other 18 million was for improvements. Which they've been using to improve Over. the uh, intersections, right? That's right. They've taken forever to do a small number of improvements that should have been knocked off years ago. In fact, the state government should also have contributed an extra $10 million for those improvements, which were costed at $28 million, but there was only 18 million of federal funding left and that's all they've used on it. So, you know, they're letting people down there. But the study showed the potential for duplication of the bridge. It's just a no-brainer. We've had the same number of crossings for, you know, 100 years. Duplication is the obvious thing to do. I note with the announcement that uh, there, and that was costed at 155 million. So I'm, I don't know if the 25 million that's been announced is part of that 155 million, or if now they want to look at another option. Well, so for as a I understand it, it's, it's 25 million dollars for a business case similarly to the um, the Warragamba Dam raising project, basic. And I could have misunderstood what um, Dominic Perrette said to me, but. It seems to me that he he wants wants it to be done, and that it's a twenty five million dollar business case over three or four years. I think it's four years to really construct a the case and also a plan to get the bridge built. And you're looking at me as if you think that that's not going to happen. Just think it's really slow. Uh, you know, it's it feels like too little, too late. Uh, can we not have a commitment that it gets done in a certain time frame, and then there's real money on the table for actual construction? So, but the, see, the when and, and by the way, why do we need a business case there when we didn't get one for Windsor Bridge? So, yeah, so I mean, that's a good point, I suppose. And, and also, if, if you look at something like the and I know this wasn't a federal issue, but the, the road corridors and they the, the government just announced it, right? And everyone mm. kicked up a stink, um, because there was 
some consultation, but frankly, it's, it seems like, and even the government's admitted really that it wasn't really enough. So they do that, and then, but then we've gone the complete 180. We've gone and said, all right, well, we're going to do all this funding and, and, and studies and stuff and make sure it's a good case, but we're also, they're also getting criticized for that. Like, I, I feel like you can't, something of that magnitude, you can't just say, yeah, we're going to do it and then worry about the rest of it later. Like, surely this is the right way to go and say, all right, well, we're going to develop detailed reasoning why this is so that, you know, three years down the track when it comes time to actually put a whole lot more money, we've actually got a solid reason and it's not just some politician thought it'd be a good idea to win some votes. Like, do, surely you can see some some merit in that argument as well. So, so it's great to see the state government finally putting some money into additional um lanes across the across the river but we already have their own government department study that shows what one of their recommended options is it's there's been community consultation on it in 2012 so they've already got a starting point uh, yet they're not saying they're going to build on that they're looking at a second site as well and I think you've got to ask questions why the second site which will still channel traffic through Richmond uh, so, look, duplication has to happen. I think they're going about it in a very slow way. There's no actual money for construction on the table. There's just money for these early stages, which have to happen. But do they really take that long? So they're all the questions I have. And they'd be great questions to get answers to from the state member. And then are we going to see real money from the state government? That's the key question, to actually build it. And what is their plan in how long it's going to take to build it? Because people are tearing their hair out trying to get across the bridges. But that's, so, you know, we get an extra lane at Windsor. We get duplication one day at North Richmond. That doesn't solve our traffic problems. We need a high four-lane bridge that doesn't go through Richmond or Windsor, that takes traffic out of those two towns, the traffic that's going through, that is one in a hundred year flood resilient, that will actually be a bit visionary and provide for the longer term needs of this community. That's the conversation we should be having now. So there's there's the state government elections in 20 March 2019 and we obviously don't know when the federal government election is but I think it's got to be held before what July 20, 2019 next year some about a year's time is, is roughly when it's meant to be held um, there's a real prospect I think that labor gets in I don't know not so sure about the federal level but certainly uh, sorry the state level if you're if you're in government are you going to be agitating for that second crossing or some of this visionary stuff? You only need on to look back or? at what I have consistently been saying for absolutely years that we need a third crossing. And yeah, so I will continue to push that. I'm really interested to see the study that the council will release towards the end of the year, the road traffic study. So in the 2016 election, we committed, if we'd won government, to do a local road study for once and for all, do a plan for what is needed where are the pinch points? Uh, there's already been a lot of studies, so bring them all together and actually come up with a, an integrated plan for local traffic, not for through traffic as such, but to help local people. Uh, and we obviously lost, but council picked up the idea. Now, I haven't had input into the scale of the study they've done, but I'm hoping that their analysis will, for the first time, bring together some of that information. The Windsor Bridge data, the North Richmond Bridge data, the Bells Line of Road corridor uh, 
data that was collected so that we can get a really good picture. We've also got the issue of flood um, mitigation and evacuation routes and, and the problem with closing both our bridges, uh, even the, the, you know, the extra, the new replacement bridge has no additional flood benefits to it. It'll still close, you know, um, be closed early if there's a fairly low um, flood or, or the waters rise a little bit. We need a really good one so that we've got a dedicated evacuation route for people to be able to get to safety. So there, and more to the point, to be able to go about their business so that when there is a little bit of rain, the local economy doesn't grind to a halt. Mm. So they're the sorts of things we should be talking about. Um, and the other stuff should just be, yep, duplication should happen. It just should happen. So just on the, I guess, on the future of, uh, of the, the next federal election, um, you famously showed your predecessor, Louise Marcus, on TV, on a big screen outside. I went and voted at the uh, North Richmond Public School. There was a great big screen out the front with um, Louise Marcus. I, I believe she was on, was it a current affair? I, I believe it was 730 on, report. 7.30 report. Um, being unable to explain what her biggest achievement Not in one the of Louise's was. moments. It was, it was um, it, and it was on a loop. Um, what's your biggest achievement so far? I've got achievements that were made even before I came to win the seat. So the I think two of the biggest things that I was able to do, one was $20 million for North Richmond Bridge and Approaches, the first government money that had gone into that area in anyone's memory. There'd been no resources put into it. So $20 million, that was pretty big for someone who lost yet the promise was still delivered. That was a pretty big achievement. And I worked with the Gillard government to ensure that my promises in this electorate were delivered. And I'm just talking about the Hawkesbury ones. The other big one in the Hawkesbury was the Windsor Wolves Stadium. You know, small clubs are just left by the wayside and it's been fantastic to see that $2 million uh, stadium go up and the difference that parents and grandparents have told me it makes to their ability and enjoyment in being involved in their their kids or their grandkids games so they go back to 2010 they I think they were big achievements but in more recent years I can understand why it's hard to come up with a single answer on it because in fact as a local MP what you try and do is make a difference to people's lives so there is a family living in Australia now who would not be living here were it not for me and my team. And that's a doctor, a local doctor whose child is has Down syndrome and the government was not going to allow them to stay. They were going to deport the child. Uh, both the parents are doctors actually and they were going to deport the child to where the father was still living overseas. He was waiting to find out whether she would be allowed to come before he uh, migrated. So we now have two highly qualified professionals working in our local community all because my office was able and I personally was able to make representations to the assistant minister to have this uh, teenage child with Down syndrome who by all accounts is a delight and ha she has an older brother who was excelling in his school with aspiration um, you know he'll be an, he'll be another big achiever so there's one family whose lives are completely transformed and the benefits to our community is that we've got a GP delivering services. Um, we've, we know, I know the difference I've made in the lives to a lot of people who are uh, using the National Disability Insurance Scheme. 
you know, whether it's the, the young woman who could not get the wheelchair that she needed, whether it's the car modifications so that a young paraplegic boy, in fact, someone who went to school, he's a, he's a man, went to school with my daughter, uh, that he can have some independence by having a car that is modified to suit his needs. Um, there are just every week there is a case where we uh, get a wonderful message from a constituent that says, oh, I don't know what you did, but finally this has been approved and it will have taken them months to try and wrangle with bureaucracy. It's outrageous that they've needed to come to their local member to get it fixed, but those are life-changing moments. Mm. Or whether it's the uh, people who have applied for a pension and are facing months and months of delay in getting an aged pension. And there's one local family where the husband has a terminal illness, he's eligible for a pension, he you know, it's the right age, everything ticks all the boxes, yet it just wasn't being processed. And that was causing terrible hardship for the family who really needed, they, you know, needed that little bit of extra income and the dignity that a pension can help bring with just a little bit of extra income. So they're, they're this, and a, and a health benefits card. So they're the sorts of things where at individuals, I know, I, I consider them massive achievements. And I can feel my eyes welling up as I <laughs> think about them. Uh, but at a broader level, the feedback I get from people about what they think I've achieved, and that's always interesting to hear the feedback, is that people feel the Hawkesbury has a voice, that we are represented, and that if there is a problem, they know I won't be afraid to stand up. Doesn't matter which government is doing it or where it is, if there's a vacuum and the Hawkesbury community needs someone to speak out for them, they know I'll do that. And to have people feel that I think is a big achievement and a big change. Well, in standing up for the Hawkesbury, what, what's one of the most frustrating things you find about the Hawkesbury? I think that we are so often ignored and forgotten by centralised governments who don't think of us as Sydney and they don't think of us as regional. And in fact, from a funding perspective, we have to sometimes compete with Sydney for funding. And of course, we don't have the population, like 50,000 people will use that facility and only 100 will use it here. So which one gets the funding? Or we compete with the regions where you have to travel. They might, someone might argue, oh, people have to travel six hours for this service. And I go, well, people have to travel two hours. That's if they can wait for the bus to even get there. We just, we miss out as this peri-urban. So what I'd really like to see is governments at a state and federal level taking into account these, what I think of as peri-urban, these outer metropolitan areas. It's probably similar concerns for the central coast, for places like Kayama and those sorts of areas. If you draw a ring around Sydney, I think that's one of our, as a community, one of our biggest challenges. If you had a magic wand, is that what you would fix? What, 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 what would you fix if you had a magic wand? We've got, you know, Connor gives you a, mag, a, a magic wand because he does look a little bit like Harry Potter. Um, I'm not sure why you would think that. I don't wear glasses or have a if you had a magic tattooed wand, on my head. What, what would you change today about the Hawkesbury or about Macquarie? If I could fix one thing right now, I'd build a third crossing. And, and make sure it integrated with the existing road systems because I think the day-to-day -day people's lives driving across bridges and the flow-on effect it has, it's not just people across the river, 
It's people who then at McGrath's Hill are caught in traffic uh, all the way down to Bly Park. Like it just, it permeates. So that, if I could, I'd just say, you know what, tomorrow there is a beautiful third crossing of the Hawkesbury, something we've never had, something we deserve, high, one in a hundred flood, four lanes, take the trucks, the double trucks off our road, that'd be it. I think that would transform this area and open up a whole lot of economic possibilities. Member for Macquarie, Susan Templeman, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure. So thanks to uh, Susan for coming in to have um, that chat with us. It was a really good one. Um, we asked her a couple of tough questions and I think she, she did pretty well to, to answer them. She did. Um, and it was, we know she came in here at, at short notice actually. So um, we appreciate that very much. Um, and yeah, that's it for us this week. Thank you. And remember to follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe free on iTunes. Keep track of what's happening in the Hawkesbury and uh, we'll talk to you next week. See you later. Bye.